最前沿的科学研究。And I think you need to constantly reboot your mindset and keep the open mind that you need that you have when you're you naturally have it when you're young, and if you can sustain it when you're old, then magic can still happen. This is Science Rehashed, the podcast where we offer a window into life science research to anyone in the world with an internet connection. I'm Layla, and I'm Mehdi, and we are your Science Rehashed co-hosts. We'd like to thank Untapped Resources for sponsoring Science Rehashed. Untapped Resources is a Boston-based foundation that funds the arts, sciences, education, and creative initiatives of people working to improve lives, celebrate community, and solve local problems. With support from the Untapped Resources Grant Program, we are committed to making science more inclusive and accessible for scientists and the science curious worldwide. For this episode, we have interviewed Dr. Caroline Bertozzi, a chemist whose work has redefined what is possible at the intersection of chemistry and biology, with implications for cancer treatment, drug delivery, and biochemical research itself. Dr. Bertozzi shared the 2022 Nobel Prize for developing methods for bioorthogonal chemistry, or a set of biocompatible chemical reactions, and for click chemistry. A method of assembling a wide range of molecules from simple building blocks. Today, Dr. Bertozzi directs the chemistry, engineering, and medicine for Human Health Institute at Stanford University, and works with several companies that she co-founded to bring her discoveries into therapeutic use. We talked with Dr. Bertozzi about seizing unexpected opportunities, the role of youthful naivete in advancing her career, and her path from organic chemistry via physical chemistry and back to organic chemistry. It's a big honor to have you here. Thank you again. It is so exciting having you join us at the tail end of what's a what must have been an incredibly exciting autumn, right? Or I guess we're in winter now, and we'd love to hear, of course, all about your Nobel Prize and everything you do in your whole life. But first, we love having our guests introduce themselves to the podcast. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, anything you want to tell us about. Oh, it's so wonderful for me. Thank you for taking an interest. My name is Carolyn Bertozzi, and. Right now, I'm a professor of chemistry at Stanford, and also I'm the director of an interdisciplinary institute that we call Serafan ChemH. And Serafan is the name of our generous donor who helps us support the institute. And ChemH is an acronym that stands for Chemistry, Engineering, and Medicine. So that's the Chem. It's C H Chemistry. E is engineering, M is medicine, and then dash H, and the H stands for human health. So yeah, so we, so we are a kind of a molecular science-oriented translational medicine institute 
that brings together chemists, biologists, bioengineers, chemical engineers, and physician scientists. So we have MD, PhD faculty, and we have a beautiful new building where all of us are together with a lot of shared interaction space. And it's just a really cool place to do science. So, so that's my current situation. The backstory is I grew up in Massachusetts, in Lexington. And so I, you know, my upbringing was probably very similar to yours in that my dad was a scientist. He was a professor at MIT in physics. So I'm kind of an academic kid in a science family. And I went to Lexington High, and then I went to college at Harvard. So when it was time for me to pick a PhD program, I like rolled out the map and I was like, okay, I'm here now. What's the furthest I could possibly go <laughs> in the mainland U.S.? And so that's how I ended up at UC Berkeley for my PhD. And I went there uh, starting in 1988 in chemistry. And so I was at Berkeley for five years, and I just fell in love with the Bay Area. And I've pretty much lived somewhere around the Bay ever since grad school. So I, you know, I graduated in 93, and I kind of decided it was time to jump out of chemistry and into biology. This is back in the early 90s when there was like one or two labs in the world where you could conceive of doing both my kind of chemistry, kind of hardcore synthetic chemistry, make molecules, and also learn cell biology and learn how to work, you know, in biological systems. The idea of doing both of those in the same lab was considered kind of a maverick idea at that time. So you couldn't do chemical biology. That really wasn't a thing you talked about at that time. You either were in a chemistry lab or in a biology lab. So I went over to a, an immunology lab at UC San Francisco, UCSF, for my postdoc. And I was there for three years almost. And then I got my first faculty position, which was at Berkeley. So I went back to the same department I had done my PhD in. And I was there, you know, happily for 19 years. And then in 2015, I had the opportunity to move to Stanford and build this institute. So the reason I moved in large part was because of this opportunity of building a whole new institute and hiring 20 new faculty into a new building with new programming. And, you know, it was just a good time for me to have a, another chapter of my career. So now, so that brought me to Stanford in 2015, and I've been there now for seven years. Tell us a little bit about how, like, what got you interested in science and in particular chemistry. My dad, as a physicist, he always was trying to promote the sciences in our household. He never, I mean, my parents never said to us, you have to be scientists. It wasn't like that. It wasn't that like blatant, but he did bring home a lot of gadgets from work lying around the house that we would play with. And my parents didn't like it if we didn't do well <clears throat> in a science class or have, you know, had a bad test performance. And they didn't like that. Math and science were very important. If I struggled in a different subject, like French or something, this was less of a problem, <laughs> you know, but not doing well in math or, you know, a science class was, that was considered a bad thing. So that message was not so subliminal. You know, if I, there were a couple times where I, you know, you know, had a, bad test in physics or math or something. And my dad was like, all right, we're going to sit down together every night after dinner at the dining room table with a pad and paper in your book. We're going to go through like, what are the things you don't understand? And, and we're going to do this every day for a week until you get command of those things you didn't understand. So this was considered to us kids a little bit of a punishment, <laughs> right? Even though it wasn't meant to be a punishment, it was meant to be like, you're struggling in a class, you need to clean it up. Let's do it. 
but but we took it as a punishment because you know you, you had to miss the love boat and fantasy island and all your favorite tv shows if you had to sit at the dinner table and do math problems so that was incentive enough to try to keep those grades good enough where you had your evenings to yourself and not doing homework with your dad that was like the culture of the house but you know having said that my older sister we were all born in the 1960s so i was born in 66 and then my older sister 65 and my younger sister was 69 we were from a generation where girls you know weren't encouraged into science, right? Girls were considered not as good as boys in math and science. And my older sister was stood in stark opposition to that culturally accepted stigma in the sense that she was like a super math genius, even really young, like elementary school math whiz, skipping grades in math because, of, you know, teachers couldn't keep up with her and stuff. So she already had sort of shattered the stereotype, kind of laid out a path and I was able to just kind of follow in those footsteps. But she took a lot of crap because when she was young, like some of her teachers even, I mean, the kids picked on her, right? She got bullied for being a brainy girl. But then the teachers were not particularly welcoming of this either. You know, she made them look bad. They were probably a little threatened by her. Maybe some of them actually tried to mean well, but they would say things to my parents like, oh, like in the parent-teacher conference, right? They would say, She's doing really well. She's obviously great at math. But, you know, she she seems to have trouble making friends. Maybe if she didn't answer so many questions in class and maybe if she, you know, maybe she would have more friends and be more popular. It was this kind of garbage. Right. And my parents would have none of that. My dad was enraged by stuff like that. Right. So it's not like he told us you have to be scientists. But if anybody else hinted that we couldn't be scientists, he would come down on them like a ton of bricks. Whereas if somebody told me, sorry, you can't make it as a professional soccer player, nobody, my parents were going to come down and get the, you know, the, the coach wasn't in, in any risk of their job, you know. But, you know, he got my older sister's fourth grade math teacher fired, pretty much. That's how protective he was about our interest in science. And so by the time I went to college, it's not like I had in my head, oh, I'm going to be a scientist. I'm going to major in a science. I, not at all. I thought I might major in music and I got recruited to play soccer and all these other things. But I also knew that if I wanted to do science, that was a perfectly legitimate thing for me or any girl to want to do because that was just baked into my brain. Hi, listeners. If you're enjoying Science Rehashed, let us know by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate our show on Spotify by tapping the three dots next to the following button and then tapping rate show. This is also a great time to hit follow if you're not following already. This is truly fascinating, like breaking the glass ceiling and unleashing the potential. I'm sure your dad is very proud at this moment. Yeah. And in fact, you know, when they announced the Nobel Prize, right? And so I got that phone call at two in the morning, California time from Stockholm. And, and the first thing I did was call my dad. And he's he, awake at that time. Yeah, he's a very, he's a night owl. He's always up late watching TV and stuff. So I, I thought he might be up and he was, and he answered the phone and being, you know, a physicist from academia, you know, he knows exactly what Nobel Prizes are and how it works. 
And I told him, I said, dad, you will not believe it. I just got a phone call and you will not believe who it was. And he's like, took him like a minute. Then he's like, wait a minute. Was it the Nobel prize? <laughs> I was like, it was the Nobel prize. So he totally guessed it. And, and, and the best thing about it, the, the only like really important thing, honestly, about it in so many ways is that he is alive to see it. Like when people say, what's the best thing about a Nobel Prize? There's lots of great things, but the one that stands way above them all is to have a parent get to experience that of their kid. And you guys can totally get this because you're both scientists. So imagine how your parents, what, how, imagine how your parents would just like explode yeah, if seriously. you had this kind of a thing to share with them. I mean, that's exactly how I felt. I cannot even envision it. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. I can't even imagine. I'm, I'm the same boat as Magic. That's amazing. I know. I couldn't imagine it either until the moment I got that call. Wow. And I was like, oh my God, this is, dad is going to love this. <laughs> So I was listening to you talk about the support of your family and creating an environment where like shattering these stereotypes wasn't necessary. Like, you know, your sister broke this glass ceiling, right? And your dad was so protective of this. You were telling us that when you started your postdoc, that there weren't really labs where you could do synthetic chemistry and molecular biology, right? But I imagine that that kind of environment of like, I can do anything that I put my mind to, like this, you know, I just, I have to think about it hard enough or like, we'll work on it after dinner, we'll figure it out. I wonder if that like contributed to your ability to like do, you know, innovate in a path where people haven't done that before. Yeah, probably it did. To be honest, the, that jump to my outside of the field into a whole new field as a postdoc, that wasn't the first time I had done something which on its face might look like it's a little scary and maverick and risky. I had had a couple of other experiences like that, which had informed me. So I, you know, I think I had already shedded some of the fear, hesitancy that a person would naturally have, you know, when they're throwing themselves into an uncharted place. It wasn't the first time I had done that. And also I had a weird PhD experience. It was unusual because my graduate advisor, he got sick about three years into my PhD. He was a new assistant professor at Berkeley. I was one of the first students in his lab. There was me and three other guys pretty much. And then three years into his job, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. He decided after a year of treatments and surgery and stuff, he didn't want to be a professor anymore. Me and those guys, one of them ended up switching to another lab, but the two of them and me, we were kind of far enough along that I was like, I cannot start all over again in another lab. I can't do it. I need to, I know what I'm doing. I know what I want to do. I'm just going to, you know, do it. And, and this is, you know, this is like the early nineties and it's, you know, long time ago now, right? What is that? 30 years ago. And things were a little more loosey goosey back then. So like me and those two guys scheduled an appointment with the department chair <laughs> and we were like, we're like, we want to keep working on our stuff in our lab without him. But, but we need the grant, like he had money and his, you know, he had grants funded, startup money and stuff. We need to be able to use the money. We need to be able to buy things and pay for things and pay for us, you know? And, and so they, what happened is they put him on a leave of absence even. So he had left and they said, well, for two years, we can put him on leave and keep the grants active in his name. And you spend the money. So we were just like forging his signature in a sanctioned way. We had no advisor. We were up in these labs with no oversight. 
And nowadays, no way. Right nowadays, you never know the liabilities, the safety issues, all of it. You couldn't. But this is, you know, was a different time, and people were a little more cowboy, kind of laissez-faire. And I think, honestly, it, it was easier for the department chair to say sure and just look the other way than it was to kind of figure us out. So, and at the time, we, the three of us, bonded together. We're like, all right, we're gonna do this, you know. And so I became sort of the de facto kind of lab, I wouldn't say the PI, because those guys were independent of me and their own projects, but I became the sort of lab manager of sorts, I guess you could say, kind of keep the lab together and stuff. And um, and I complained a lot at the time, oh, poor me, my, my advisor left, I'm on my own, I have no guidance, no supervisor, no, no support, blah, 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 blah. It was a great experience because I learned a lot. For example, we had to write our own papers without anyone to fix them for us. You know, when they didn't get accepted, we had to get on the phone with the editor-in-chief and argue about reviewer three and blah, blah, blah. And there, and this is before the internet, right? So you actually made phone calls. So, so I was on the phone with the editor at JAX, right? Journal of the American Chemical Society. And I'm like, you know, reviewer two clearly didn't understand the work, you know? And he's like, wait, 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 wait. He's like, who are you? Who is this? <laughs> where is your boss? <laughs> and I'm like, it doesn't matter where my boss is. Yeah, that's right. I was like, I don't, I don't know where he is right now. But listen, back to reviewer number three. We have a problem here. And so, you know, we just had to learn how to step up and do this kind of stuff. And we were so young and stupid that we, we had no fear, you know. So we did that. And then, so the interesting thing is when it came time for me to look for a postdoc, since I didn't have like a regular lab with a regular advisor who you would meet with and would advise you and where you have group meetings and people get feedback from people. I mean, I didn't have that. So I had to kind of come up with an idea for a postdoc just kind of on my own, which I think was great because when I, I had this idea, I found the person I thought would be great to work for at UCSF, this immunologist. And, and then I had to get letters of recommendation from other professors, right? And, and so I went to my other like thesis committee type people and I said, oh, you know, I wanna go postdoc for this guy, but I need a letter. And, and they were like, well, wait a minute, who is this person? I said, well, he's an immunologist and you wouldn't know him, it's a totally different field. And all of my Berkeley chemistry professors were like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, that is a huge mistake, don't, leave the field, go into some completely different environment. Nobody knows you. You don't know them. If you want a career in chemistry, right, if that's your goal, like in pharma or in academia, you need a, the backing of an influential chemist. And I had not been indoctrinated because I hadn't been in a normal lab where you get indoctrinated, right? I, I, was so, I was so unindoctrinated that I felt free to go do whatever I wanted to do, right? And, and one of my professors said, if you do that, if, if your goal is an academic job, which at the time I thought it might be, I wasn't sure, but I thought it might be. And, uh, and he said to me, you basically, you're just flushing your career in the toilet. And in the background, in my mind, I heard flush. <laughs> I just had this mental image of me circling the toilet bowl and going down, you know. And then I was like, well, so be it, you know. Youth is a precious thing, isn't it? Even when I was an undergrad, I ended up in a lab 
working on a project that was way over my head. <laughs> and it was another one of those things where it was a, like, started out as a kind of a failure and then turned success. And then sophomore year, you have to take organic chem because that's the pre-med requirement, right? And then that's when I totally got hooked by chemistry and specifically by organic chemistry. All the other pre-meds hated it. I loved it. I like top score in the class. It was effortless for me. You know, I just thinking about it. It just clicked. Yeah, it, literally. It just clicked. Yeah. And um, and you're the first person to ever make that pun. Just kidding. You're like the thousandth person. To <laughs> Surprise. Surprise. I'm so sorry. But anyways, that's why I preempted it for you, just to say, spare you, you know. the. Thank you. But anyway, so yeah, I so OCHEM hooked me, and then I switched my major to chemistry, but I was already a junior by the time I figured that out. And then what happened was I wanted to work in a lab. I was like, oh, I'm going to be a chemist. I'm going to get a PhD, and my whole life I'm going to be an organic chemist of some sort. I don't know what kind, how, but that's what I want to do. So I want to work in a lab. And so I started going door to door, asking professors for a summer lab job, as we all do. And that's where I couldn't get my way past the barrier. So at that time, there was a glass door, I guess, a glass wall for women in organic chemistry. It was very hard for us to break in to that field back then. And Harvard was like particularly impenetrable for, for women. Very few women in the PhD program there, one or two, maybe three out of 30 per class. And they all quit in their second year because they were so minoritized. And so it was a bit of a bloodbath for women. And, and I didn't know that. When I fell in love with the subject, it was innocent class that I loved, you know, and so on. And it wasn't until I, I started looking for a lab job and talking with a lot of the TAs about how do I do this and how do I do that. And that's when I got the inside, the insider story about um but the struggles of women trying to be organic chemists and i was like damn it is this really a thing because i grew up so sheltered with you know my dad was like my offensive line and there was he was such a lead blocker that we never experienced that kind of everyday sexism mm -hmm. when we were kids we were blinded to it it was there but we were blinded to it. And so there I was in college and suddenly I had to see it with my own eyes. I was like, oh my God, that's gross. And so, you know, that was a, there was some, a period of time when I was kind of depressed and demoralized. I was like, I'm not gonna be able to do this. If you're enjoying the show and want to help us keep making content, please consider becoming one of our patrons on Patreon. Find us at patreon.com slash join slash science rehashed to become a patron for just $3 a month. Or you can become a VIP patron for just $5 a month. Our first 10 VIP patrons will receive a free science rehash water bottle. That's patreon.com slash join slash science rehashed to join. Dr. Bertozzi, before the break, you were talking about this rude awakening you experienced as an undergrad to the pervasive sexism that looked like it was going to derail your dream of becoming a chemist. What happened next? What happened was I was just about to jump ship. So I was rethinking my decision to switch my major. I had decided to look for lab jobs in biochem labs because I saw women, some of my friends were getting lab jobs in these biology labs. And I said, well, maybe that's 
maybe I'm going to go back to biology because it's more open to me. And then I was taking a graduate class in physical organic chemistry, and I was doing well. And the professor, who was this young physical chemist, not an organic chemist, he was a, phys- a pea chemist, he came up to me after class one day. He said, oh, you're Carolyn, right? Just can you wait? I want to ask you something. Just hold on a second. Everyone leaves. Then he, comes, he says, you know, I just wanted to tell you, you know, you're doing really well in the class. It's great. And what are you doing this summer? <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm looking for lab jobs in biology or biochem labs. He's like, well, would you consider my lab? It turns out that he had a project that he wanted someone to work on, and he was struggling to get grad students to join his lab. And the reason was that at Harvard at that time, the tenure rate was very, very low for chemistry. No assistant professor was ever tenured there. So that was considered a starter job. And then you would move as a tenured professor to some other place that would recruit you. And so because of this, no grad students wanted to go into labs of assistant professors. So no student would join his lab. He was desperate. So he went shopping for undergrads. And he picked me out of that class because my grade was good and asked me if I wanted to work in his lab. And I was like, oh my God, like a chemistry professor wants me in their lab? And on the spot, I was like, yes, I, I would love to work for you. That, and then after that, I was like, what do you do in your lab exactly? Like, like no idea. I didn't know what he did. <clears throat> I knew it was PCAM. That's all I knew. But he was a chemist. He was chemistry. So it wasn't exactly the door... I wanted to go through, but it was a, the side door, right? Or the back door. And I got to squeak through the back door there. And so I worked in his lab and I, I built a machine called a photoacoustic calorimeter. I wrote software for it. You know, it was a laser instrument. So I had a lot of a laser table and I was doing optics and getting into the bowels of computers so that I could program them with machine language and stuff and zero organic chemistry. But it was a project that was way over my head in every way. The physics was over my head. The computer science part of it was over my head. The machining, I had to build photoacoustic microphones with piezoelectric crystals. And yet it wasn't over my head, right? Because everything is over your head until you get in there and chip away at it day by day and learn bit by bit. And then, you know, a year and a half later, you've done something that you couldn't even picture having done on day one. So for me, like that experience was transforming because it was the first time I got into something without having already the confidence that I knew how to do it. Yeah. And, you know, I was a leap of faith that he would help me. I would read stuff and figure it out. And if I got stuck, I would go around for help and stuff. So I kind of learned how to be independent, how to be confident, how to make mistakes, how to go around looking for help from strangers and knocking on doors. And I built it. It turns out there was an internship at Bell Labs that you could apply to, and it was to support women in physical sciences. This was the heyday of Bell Labs, the 1980s. They were winning Nobel Prizes there. It was physics and optics and material science. So I got that internship, and I worked there over the summer, and then they also gave me a fellowship for grad school. So that was the program. So I was a Bell Labs fellow. And the guy I worked for at Bell Labs, who was a young physical chemist, a young hotshot, when Bell shut down, he left and he became a professor at Stanford. And now he's my colleague. He was a really important person in my life. I only worked for him for three months. His name is Chris Chidzi. So he moved to Stanford while I was a postdoc at UCSF. It was during that same time period in the 90s. And so we were both living in San Francisco. 
at the time. So he was commuting to Stanford from San Francisco. So we used to hang out on weekends and barbecues and with his kids and stuff. And, and it was at one of those barbecues that he talked me into applying for academic jobs. I hadn't really embraced the idea. I didn't have the confidence at that time to do that. But he planted that seed and he was like, you really should apply. Just go for it. What do you have to lose? And if I think if he hadn't done that, I might never have really turned the corner to look for academic jobs because I had had such a weird PhD experience and no advisor from grad school. And then postdocing in this totally different field. And it just, I was disorganized in my head about my career, I guess. And Chidzi was the one, he's like, Stanford is going to search for a chemical biologist. You should apply. Berkeley was searching. UCSF was searching all in the same year. So I just applied to those three places and I got my job at Berkeley. And without Chris, I might not have done that. And I would never have met Chris if I hadn't done the internship. And I would never have gotten the internship if I hadn't worked for this physical chemist, which I wouldn't have done if any of those organic chemists had actually given me a shot. And I tell this story because there were a few women who did work in organic chemistry labs in that period of time. There were few and far between, but there were a few. And most of them got ground up like a meat grinder and ended up leaving science. They had such a, a bad experience, a lot of toxic masculine bullshit, you know. They were just driven out of science. And like that could have happened to me. If I had gotten into one of those labs, who knows if I would have stuck it out. But instead, I worked for this young guy who had no grad students, who treated me like a grad student and with respect and gave me a good experience in the lab, even though it was PCOM. This is really fascinating to listen to this story, Anne, but also remind me of one of your quotes that you say, over the years, I have become pretty good at sensing when something is an opportunity, even when it's something I never thought I would want to do. So tell us a bit about how these eye for opportunity has played out in your career. That experience from undergrad, that was the lesson ground zero. I wanted to do this. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't do it. The doors were closed and I couldn't figure a way in. And something else came along, which wasn't really what I had in mind, but it was an opportunity. And fortunately for me, even though I was young and stupid, somehow I seized the moment and I took the opportunity. And I don't know why I did that, but I did. And then that got snowballs going, right? But I will never forget that feeling about that, how, how lucky I felt very lucky that I had decided to do this when I could have easily said, no, I'm going to go to this biology lab or whatever. And something in me just said yes. So it happened a couple other times, you know, when I was uh, a young professor, fairly young professor still, I had an opportunity to become the director of a nanoscience facility at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And nanoscience was not like the center of gravity of my research at all. I was dabbling on the edges, but I was, you know, I was an organic chemist, but we were doing bioorthogonal chemistry and glycoscience, and I was not a nanoscientist, you know, but for reasons I won't go into, the opportunity came my way, and I was like, okay, this is, this is really adjacent to my research focus, but it's a huge opportunity to direct an institute with a $25 million budget and hire lots of people and create something from scratch, and I feel like I could learn a lot from that. I would meet a lot of interesting people. I would learn some new science. You know, I would learn management skills, which at a level I had never encountered before. And so in 2006, I said, yes, I'll do it. And I was the kind of the founding director of that institute. 
And that was another transformative experience that stuck with me forever after that. And, and after I did that, that was another confidence boosting experience because I felt like on paper, I'm completely uncredentialed to, to be in charge of something of this magnitude. But I did it. I figured it out. I hired people that I needed to fill in my deficits. And that's a lesson. I think there are, there are a lot of moments that you seize the opportunities, even just by interacting with people. And, and another thing that really fascinated me in this changing fields, which is, was, well, I, I'm right now doing a lot of interdisciplinary field, but I'm not really proud of myself. I'm going through this career. It's very, very common right now. Like you have this convergence and working at the intersection of the different fields. But at that time, going from glycans, sugar coatings on cells, and to clear chemistry, to glycoscience, and then you, you merge that with immunology and cancer. What was the problem that you want to solve? Where was the gap that clicked in your mind, say, hey, I want to merge these fields? That journey started in grad school. When, um, you know, I worked in the lab of this young new professor and we were doing organic synthesis, but the molecules we were making were carbohydrates. His name was Mark Bednarski. May he rest in peace. He's the one who first introduced me to sugar molecules and glycoscience and carbohydrate chemistry, where the focus was on figuring out how to make the molecules. I was started reading a lot about, like, why do we want to make these molecules? Well, because they have interesting biological functions. So I started reading about the biology, and that then really hooked me, because even at that time, already there was like an intersection between glycoscience and cancer. And people had been reporting on changes in glycosylation patterns on tumor cells, and, and, and no one knew why. Nobody knew the significance of those changes. It was just very observational. There was no mechanistic insight back then. You know, when I chose my postdoc, it was to work in a glycoimmunology lab. So there was a glyco connection. And here you go, seizing the opportunity again. <laughs> well, so the thing is, the interesting thing is I applied to five labs. And at that time, this is again, 1991, 92, the big story in glycoscience was the discovery of a family of adhesion receptors called the selectins. And the selectins are leukocyte homing receptors. So they allow circulating white blood cells to exit the bloodstream and traffic to sites of infection or inflammation. And they had just been cloned. This was before the human genome. So you had to clone things one at a time back then. And people weren't quite sure what carbohydrate structures they were binding to, but they knew that they were binding some carbohydrates because they were, their homology was to lectins. That's why they're called the selectins. They were you know, structurally related to other known carbohydrate binding receptors. So people just assumed they bound carbohydrates, but no one knew exactly what the details were of their ligands. And it was a really hot area because they're very important in inflammation. So they were hot drug targets. And anyway, so I applied to five labs that worked on selectins. And they were just the only five in the world, really, that were working on this family of receptors. And only one of those labs even gave me an interview. So Four out of five of those labs, three of them ghosted me. And again, this is, this is before the internet and stuff. So I wrote a letter, printed it out, put it in an envelope with a stamp and mailed it. That was my application. Oh, my for, God. Yeah, right. There's, there's no, we weren't doing email as a main source of communication back then. One of them wrote back and he said, 
let's have a phone call. He said, you know, unfortunately, I can't take you, but let's have a phone call. We, at least we can talk about it. Maybe I can be helpful. And he said, listen, you know, your background is in chemistry. My lab is a cell biology lab. I don't know what we would do with you in my lab. And I was like, well, but I, I don't want to do chemistry. I want to, I'm done with that. I want to do biology now. And I, I said, I really want to learn biology. That's why I want to go into a different kind of environment. I want to learn and, I'm, and I, I work hard. And he said, well, I appreciate all that, but he said, you know, the truth is that I need postdocs who can come in and hit the ground on day one and be productive and just don't have the bandwidth to have a postdoc come in and have to learn for how long it takes to learn and da 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 But he was nice about it. And it was, but again, I felt like, oh, damn it. I'm never going to get a postdoc in a biology lab. I just don't have any skills. But that fifth one was Steve Rosen at UCSF. And to be honest, he the only reason he gave me an interview is because he knew I could drive there and he wouldn't have to pay for a plane ticket or anything like that because <laughs> it was closed. And he's, and so for him, he's like, why not? And so I was like, this is my one shot because I'm striked out four times. So I know one shot left. So I read every, I memorized literally every paper he had written the last five years. <laughs> I, you know, I, I was like, I have to come across like I know biology. <laughs> I can't, oh my I can't go in there. <laughs> you know, like some dumb chemist, you know, so I studied and my job talk and I worked so hard on that. And I went in there and, and I, and I pitched myself. I said, look, I read all your papers. I'm fascinated by the selectins. You guys, you really need to figure out the molecular structure of the ligands and their carbohydrate ligands. You're not going to get them by expression cloning. You're not going to get them. This was before CRISPR. Now you would do a CRISPR screen, whatever. Right. I said, you need a chemist. The only way to figure out the structures of those carbohydrates on those inflamed blood vessels is through chemistry, mass spectrometry, and right, so on and so forth. I just sold myself hard. I said, if you hire me, I will find, I will figure out the structures of those carbohydrates that are binding to this receptor. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, I really hope I can figure out the structure. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah. I can do it. I and will do it. God, I hope I can do it. <laughs> so I just, I sold myself as you need a chemist and I'm the girl, you know, and he took me and we got along well, you know, it was a good rapport and the lab, I liked the people, they liked me. So it was a good like personal match and stuff, which helps too, right? Yeah, it just uh, remind me of our discussion with Bob Langer and uh, he went from a chemical engineer at that time, all the people, all the graduated students going to the oil companies. And he went to Falkman. He wrote a letter to Falkman. He said, oh, I want to work at Boston Children's Hospital at that time on angiogenesis. He said, what can you do as a chemical engineer? I said, I will do my best. Exactly. Right. And, and the rest is history. Exactly. This is Bob Lango. This is Bob Lango now. Right. <laughs> But, you know, the funny thing is, and, and, and honestly, so, you know, I mentioned before, my Berkeley professors were negative on this idea of me going to work for this biologist, right? They were very negative on this. And they were like, this is a stupid idea. There goes your career. Now you're basically taking yourself out of chemistry and you'll never come back. Fine. So be it, right? A couple of years later, I apply for jobs because Chris Chidsey had encouraged me to, this P-chemist that I worked for, right? And I applied and I got the job at Berkeley and people were like, you know, it was, you were so unique in your combination of, <laughs> of 
chemistry and cell and like your deep understanding of cell biology was so distinguishing compared to all the other candidates. <laughs> that was such such a brilliant move. If you're enjoying this episode, join the conversation with us on Twitter at Science Rehashed, where we will be rehashing this episode. Don't forget to follow us on all of our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Science Rehashed to stay in the loop about our new episodes and upcoming interviews. And so we've talked a lot about your academic, you know, path and figuring things out. We've also started a number of companies, right, that have transformed or worked to transform your lab discoveries into products out in the wider world. So if you can tell us what you've learned since your first foray into commercializing your work. A lot. I mean, every company is its own drama, right, has its own challenges. And the challenges change over time. So the, the early companies I formed, the hardest part, of course, was raising the money and convincing investors to put their money into a company with people who were young and untested, because I didn't have a track record early on. But then with every company, assuming there's some success in there somewhere, it gets a little easier because you become less risky. People feel like you're a safer bet, right? Your network grows. Like my network is a lot bigger now with, I know a lot more investors and different VC groups that I've worked with. You know, I kind of have a better sense of what they're looking for and what they're not interested in. I don't waste people's time like I used to, you know. So it gets easier. But having said that, every company is a child. And as you know, when you have children, every child is different. They each have their own special needs. They're going to have their own challenges and dramas and crises. They're going to have their good phases and their bad phases. And, and you have to be able to hang in there and roll with it and always stay connected to like what's happening in the financial climate and how does that map onto what your company needs? Are you diluting yourself? Do you need to pivot? So I have learned a lot. And the most important thing of all, I think, is especially since I'm an academic, so I never work full time in any of my companies. I help launch them and then I'm a consultant and an advisor, but I don't work there. The most important thing is to get a really amazing team, the best talent you can possibly get in the leadership roles in your companies, and also make sure the science is absolute top notch. You can't have wishy-washy science. It has to be robust, reproducible, bulletproof. And don't even bother launching the company unless you're absolutely convinced the science is top, top quality. Speaking of top-notch science, we always ask our guests about future. So you develop a lot of tools from drug delivery to biomolecule detection to gene editing. What is next as you look ahead? What problems do you want to solve, but also what you would like to, to explore? It's never late for two Nobel Prize. Oh, God. <laughs> oh I barely survived this one. You know? So, you know, because I, I work in, in biomedical sciences and, and the companies I start tend to be focused on drug development, although some of them are diagnostics. But for drug development, you need a pretty long runway to get from the idea to a product. If you're ever lucky enough to get that far, it's a 20-year proposition most of the time, right? And so at my age, I'm conscious of the fact that I don't have that many runways left. Because I'm 56, so I'll be 76 20 years from now. So the idea of today, if everything works well, is the product of, of me when I'm 76 years old, right? So I feel like I've made a big investment in the last seven years, really, since I moved to Stanford. I've started a lot of companies at Stanford. 
I started one at Berkeley and now nine at Stanford. And I've been getting busy with this because we, we had a lot of science in our heads and in the lab that I thought, you know, should be translated into a company. And I think just to kind of shepherd this wave of companies through the gauntlet of R&D and preclinical development, and then hopefully clinical, a couple of them are now clinical stage companies. And to get them to the point where we've gotten the value out of the science, I think is, no, I'm not there yet. Like that is very much still in my kind of immediate future, immediate in the next five years type immediate. So I'm pretty saturated with my ongoing commitments right now. But if you ask me, like, if I'm to live another 30 years, you know, what, what else would I like to accomplish besides making medicines out of the science we've already done? You know, there, there are areas in which I think there's so much left to learn that we don't understand. And if I can make a dent in some of the basic science in, in glycobiology, I'd feel good about that. Like, for example, I have a postdoc who's out there in Boston, former postdoc, Ryan Flynn, who's a professor at Harvard. And his labs are in the Boston Children's Hospital. He's an MD-PhD. And in my lab, he discovered a new type of glyco molecule. And so if you read the textbooks, they'll tell you. Oh, I read about this. This was so cool. It's glycoRNA, right? And, and so if you read the textbooks, there's glycoproteins and glycolipids. And those are the glyco things. And it turns out Ryan stumbled into a ubiquitous third glycomolecule. So glycoRNA is all over our cells, anchored there in a way that we don't fully understand that he's working on this in his lab. And that discovery is only two years old and we have no idea anything about it, how it's made in the cell, how the trafficking allows its presentation on the cell surface. And then most importantly, what does it do there? Why is it there? Why did nature invest energy to build such a thing? And what's the function? And so that could take 100 years to get traction on, right? I mean, that's how when you discover a molecule with completely unknown biology, it's going to take a while to fill in the gaps. And I'd like to be able to contribute to that alongside Ryan and other people who are jumping into the field now. I remember reading about that. And my background is in population genetics. So I love thinking about, you know, life origin. And I was thinking, I don't know, maybe doing a PhD in RNA, self forming molecules and, and things like that. And I remember reading that paper about the glycan RNAs and I was like, that this must be totally revolutionary to anyone who studies RNA. And I'm sure glycans too, but I was just thinking about the RNA, right? And thinking about origins of life and thinking about adhering to like, you know, different chemical surfaces. And, and you know, I thought it was totally fascinating. So I, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yes. And you know, the, the funny thing is that was another lesson for me because Ryan... He, his background was in RNA, biochemistry. So he did his MD, PhD, PhD with Howard Chang at Stanford. And he came to my lab and he basically, he said to me, you know, RNA is ancient. It's mod, there's so many RNA modifications, hundreds of them. It's modified in every crazy way you could imagine. Why shouldn't it be glycosylated? And I was like, well, that's, no one has ever uttered that sentence. <laughs> Nobody would have considered RNA and glycosylation together just because it's not the framework in which we learn biology, right? But in the moment that he said that, I, I, I couldn't help but wonder, like, then honestly, had anyone ever looked? It wouldn't have occurred to me to even look, right? But it occurred to him because he was outside of my box. He was in a different little world where you look <laughs> for RNA modification. 
And so he said, can I come postdoc for your lab? And I'm going to look. <laughs> and at first I justified it. I was like, well, if there was ever to be a glyco modification of RNA, it, the only one I could imagine was this one particular thing, which is known to occur in the cytosol. And I was like, well, RNA is in the cytosol and nucleus. This other glycosylation thing happens in the cytosol. Maybe those two could touch. So why don't you look for that? And in my head, I'm like, you better have a, a backup project. you know. And so he looked for that and did not see it. But in one of his control experiments, he saw something else. And the something else turned out to be a totally different glycosylation of the type you would only see in the secretory pathway. And you wouldn't have ever thought to look for that because RNA, as far as you know, never touches the secretory pathway, right? And yet, he kept telling me, I think that there's end-linked glycans on my RNA. I'm like, no, no, it's an artifact. It's an impurity. And he's like, this is real. And then I slowly I had to come around to the idea that we don't know enough about biology to say that something is impossible. We just don't know enough. So that taught me another lesson as a grizzled old senior professor that when you're young, like when I was a young professor, I was like, let's, let's invent chemical reactions we could do inside the human body. Yeah. And everyone else, all my senior colleagues were like, that'll never work. That's impossible. Why would you do such a crazy, right? And now I have a Nobel Prize to show for that. And likewise, when I was a grizzled professor, I was like, that's impossible. No, forget it. And Ryan was like, why not? You know? And I had an out-of-body experience with this conversation between myself and Ryan. I was like, oh, my God, I'm old. <laughs> I got to turn that around. <laughs> I've become cynical and, and set in my ways. I've, I was set in my mindset. And I think you need to constantly reboot your mindset and keep the open mind that you need, that you have when you're, you naturally have it when you're young. And if you can sustain it when you're old, then magic can still happen. What a great conversation with a brilliant scientist. It was great to hear about Dr. Bertozzi's unexpected paths around and through glass ceilings and walls, and how this sort of unexpected career path led her back into the field where she's made such a difference. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Ben Allen and edited and mixed by Vesna Ilieska. The cover art for this episode was made by our creative director, Emma Brand. We'd also like to thank the whole Science Rehash team for making this episode possible. <laughs>